You're listening to the Eltham Baptist Church podcast. We've got two, as I say, a little bit, little bit of a treat tonight. I've got two sermons for you. How's that? They're both longer, uh, each about, about an hour. Um, but that's <laughs> why so I just wanted to get you at the front. Um, but no, no, no. We'll, we'll do, do a couple of shorter sermons um, tonight as we did this morning. And the first one is, is on this topic, as Sam said, which has become a little bit delicate, really, hasn't it, about the whole, whole issue of what is it that makes a marriage. And, and I think if you've been alive for 50-odd years, some which some of us have, actually, very, very close, um, you'll have noticed that there seems to be something of a shift in society regarding what we tolerate in terms of what we're allowed to talk about and not talk about. And perhaps if there's anything surprising in more recent days is perhaps a a little bit more of an atmosphere in which we are feeling, um, many groups actually, not just Christians, but, but a little bit silenced and shut down on various topics. And that... I guess that characteristic of a democratic society in which we, well, we, we valued and cherished freedom of speech and, and it was okay to talk about well, sometimes controversial things, that we seem to be losing that. There's a, um, a writer for The Australian, his, his name is Philip, Philip Adams, and who's, who knows of Philip Adams or has read some of him? He's not a great fan of the church or Christianity. In fact, he's an out-and-out atheist. But I'd defend his right to write. I would defend him up, down, backwards, forwards, left and right. I would defend him to be able to continue in his atheist views. And, and yes, if he wishes to, even his attacks on the church. Don't agree with him. Don't like what he has to say but I believe he should be able to express his opinions. And perhaps one of the surprising things on the discussion on marriage and is why the discussion is, is getting just a, just a little bit ugly. What would, what would force a rather democratic society even to, to somehow feel that, uh, that a plebiscite, a general vote of what the population thinks on, on a given topic is a bad thing all of a sudden? Well, that's a little bit surprising. Uh, don't we value what the people think? Don't we, don't we value? I mean, the majority of people aren't always right. But isn't one of the aspects of a democratic society that we love and cherish and, and have championed the right for people to actually put forward their vote and say, well, this is what we think. And yet, for some reason, all of a sudden, we're being persuaded that a plebiscite would be a be a bad thing. And we, we have to understand that it could be a couple of outcomes from a plebiscite on this particular topic. But again, I think it is good for people to be able to vote, to be able to express their opinions and to be able to put forward their particular views, whether we agree with them or not. Why, again, in the confusion on this topic, why would, would those who say that this issue at the end of the day is, is really all about love, more recently shows such hatred, even violence towards Christians, so much so that, that threats of violence were so real that various 
various meetings and conferences and, and cohorts have had to be, had to be cancelled, um, both in this state and in interstate as well. It seems odd, doesn't it? What is it that is, that is going on here? Well, I just want to spend a, a, few, a few minutes just exploring this a little bit together. We, we have, as you know, um, and we're going to celebrate one of them tonight, a number of sacraments in, in the church, in most Protestant churches. There are two that are, are acknowledged, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Some denominations, such as the Catholic Church, will celebrate more than that, and, and they will include marriage in that. Well, we don't as Protestants, and yet we still consider the institution of marriage it is, as it has traditionally been defined as, as something which is sacred. And these sacraments, sacred acts of the church, it can be defined as an, an outward and visible sign of an inward and invisible grace. And what we mean by that is, we think about baptism, it's a very visible sign, isn't it? A very real one. Somebody gets dipped in the water and they come up again. And, and that, of course, symbolizes their start in the Christian life. It symbolizes how they have identified with the death and resurrection of Christ and, and their start in the Christian life by, by symbolizing their death and resurrection to self. A death and resurrection which takes place in Christ. The Lord's Supper, that's a once-off once type deal. The Lord's Supper, though, is a, is a sacrament that is continuous for all of us. And it symbolizes our, our perseverance in the Christian faith, our continually sharing in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then marriage is, is also highly symbolic as well. I want to explore that for a moment, and you'll have to put your thinking caps on with me. But when we think about God, there are a couple of attributes, many, many attributes, but a couple that, that are important at this juncture. Now, the first one is that, that God is often described as absolute, meaning he's complete, independent of anything else and anyone else. He's content independent of anything else and anyone else. God is just absolute. He is. He is very happy, very content, and very complete. Quite apart from anything external to himself. He is absolute. And another attribute we know about God is that he is, he is loving. In fact, if you were to ask, well, who is the most loving person in all the world? It would be God, who is the, the most loving being in all the world. It's God. He, and so much of Scripture, uh, describes God as epitomizing love. And yet the nature of love is that it needs to be expressed and it needs to be experienced to be loved, doesn't it? Now, if God is absolute and he needs nothing outside of himself, external of himself, how is it that he can also be loving, that he can express love? Well, who would he express it to? Remember, if he's absolute, he's not dependent upon anyone else. How would he experience love? Remember, if he's absolute, he's not de dependent upon anything external or anyone external to himself. So how does he express and experience love? It was Augustine who first addressed this dilemma and noted that it's, 
His triune nature is the answer to this problem. That is, one God, but three persons. Not three gods, one God in three persons. We introduced to the Trinity very, very early on in Scripture. In Genesis 1, verse 1, we have, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, God the Father. Verse 2, actually, Genesis 1, we're introduced to God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And in verse, verse 3, God spoke things into creation. And in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, we understand that the word of God that went forth to speak things into creation is none other than Christ himself. In the beginning was the word, we read, and through him all things were made. And so we're introduced to the third part of the Trinity. So because God is Trinity, he can be both absolute, complete, content, and whole, and unreliant upon anything external to himself, but he can also be loving. He can express love to the other members of the Trinity. He can experience love from the other members of the Trinity. And there's a special unity there which Jesus spoke of in John chapter 17. He talked about us being able to be one as he is, he is one. There is a special, special love and affection within the Trinity. Jesus in John chapter 15 talks about the love of the Father and his love for the Father. There is a special love, unity and fellowship that exists within the Trinity. And then further on in Genesis, we read in Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 and 27... That humanity is made in the image of God. Male and female, he made them. And so here we are made in the image of God. And I want to say that if you're single and male, within you is the image of God. If you're male or female, either way, the image of God, you're made in the image of God, sorry, and you are a bearer of the image of God. But there is one aspect of his nature which is very hard for any single one of us to bear the image of. And that is the love, the fellowship, and the unity of the Trinity. Yet we're made in God's image. So how is this expressed? Well, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, a helper had to be made for, for mankind. And of course, she was called... Woman, and I've I've said before that the the Hebrew there is is very very simple. It's Adam saw her and said, "Whoa, man!" And thus the word woman. And so for this reason, and there's a very good reason, a man will leave his his father and his mother, and he will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. It's very very interesting language. And so there in the garden. Of, of Eden, which is highly symbolic of, of heaven and perf a perfected state, there is, there is a threesome, man, wife, united as one with God. Solomon mysteriously refers to the fact that three strands in a cord are not easily broken. There is this beautiful theme throughout Scripture in which when a man and a woman come together, the two become one flesh. They represent and capture that aspect of the image of God, which is the triune nature, the unity, the love, and the fellowship that they share together. And so marriage is 
as such a symbol of the unity within the Trinity. It's a reflection of a unique aspect of the image of God. Now, like all symbols, marriage is actually not going to be in heaven. Now, this is a little bit mysterious too. And for those of, those of us who have had the joy of, of being married, I guess we've sometimes wrestled with this and thought, well, I don't like the sound of that. I thought things got better. We have to trust God on this, that they do, that there is a, another level of relationship and intimacy with one another and with God that where marriage would be just a poor reflection of that. But there will be no baptism in heaven. The symbol will no longer be required because there will be no initiation or start into the Christian life and the family of God. There will be no need. The symbol will have done its job. It will have passed away. We will not be celebrating the Lord's Supper. We're told, do this until I come. We won't be doing this in heaven. Why not? Because, because what it symbolizes, the victory of Jesus Christ, we're actually going to see. We're going to see it firsthand. We will see the Lamb of God upon the throne, and we will see him ruling. We will have no need, therefore, to celebrate these symbols and to remember the work of Christ that was done on the cross. And there will be no marriage in heaven. Why not? Because the symbol that it represents to show us that aspect of the nature of a triune God will no longer be required. Why? Because we will see God in all of his glory and in all of his fullness. And so marriage offers to us an aspect of the image of God which, which brings God glory. And going back to that initial question that I asked, what's gone wrong with this discussion? Why are we unable to reason about these things in a reasonable fashion? Let me, let me offer that there is, there is an explanation, perhaps, which, which goes a layer deeper than what much of the discussion is about. It's a peculiar one, and it's more helpful, perhaps, for those of us in the church trying to work out how to grapple with these things and understand our times. But this perspective is that there is one who is absolutely opposed to the glory of God. We know who that is. We call him by many names, the devil, Lucifer, Satan, the evil one, the prince of this world, the ruler of darkness. He has many, many names. He's the deceiver, but he's real. And Scripture tells us that, that he has tried to exalt himself above God. The status that belongs to God alone is a status which he has tried to claim for himself. And unable to... To claim that status, he is bent on distorting the image of God and robbing God of the glory that he alone deserves. And there are perhaps three key areas in which we, we see the battlefront today. Marriage is not the only one. The other one is religious freedom or freedom of conscience. We often refer it to or refer to it. As quite simply there, we are, we are referring to that freedom that God gave us as his gift when we were created. We were created in the image of God and an aspect of, of the freedom that God enjoys is, is something that we also enjoy. Of course, after the fall, it was not necessarily a good thing. Martin Luther used to call it or refer to it as our wretched free will. 
Nonetheless, that freedom of conscience, that freedom to, to believe and to express those beliefs is something that is cherished by the Christian church. It reflects part of the way that we are made. Marriage and family, once more, I've, I've just talked about that. A key foundation to understanding the sacredness of marriage is to understand that we are made in God's image and, and together a man and a woman are able to express or give expression to that aspect of God's nature, which is the, his unity, the unity within the Trinity. And then, of course, human life itself, the sanctity of life, the sacred nature of human life, which is under attack in terms of abortion, euthanasia, and various reproductive technologies today. The image of God is a key foundational doctrine in each of these cases. And I guess more and more, Christians have been feeling like their beliefs regarding this need to find some expression. And so it's for that reason that, that we are, are joining the Catholic Church, actually, in a month of prayer and fasting for marriages and, and families. But it's not just the Australian Catholic Church. There are many, many denominations who are, who are actually joining in this month of prayer and fasting. And uh, interestingly, one of the leading groups in this, of course, or maybe, maybe you didn't know, is, is key Christian Aboriginal leaders. You're also supporting this call for prayer and fasting to protect marriage from redefinition. Marriage between a man and a woman is very sacred in Indigenous culture, and they have been leading the charge in this as well. It's very interesting. And so we are joining uh, with others who believe that the understanding, the, the belief system that has underpinned a, Judeo, a society built on Judeo-Christian beliefs, they're important to restate again. We believe that this is the sort of sort of battle that is best won on our knees. And so a month of prayer and fasting is a good way to do it. And you might fast many different things. Bron and I have decided to, to fast coffee for the month of October. Um, just as a reminder, every time, and there have been many, what are we, two days into the month? There have been many every time that I have just a little bit of a hankering for coffee. It's a reminder. You know what? I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for this. This is important. And uh, this little handout, which... Um, which we're going to give out a little bit later, or have they been handed out as people came in? I'm not sure. Have you got, have you got one of these? Yeah, some, some have. If, if not, you can grab one on the way out. And there are various prayers for, for each of the Sundays, and, and I think they're very good prayers. I think they're very helpful prayers, and I think this is a very, very helpful approach to, to go about this. And pray God will answer these prayers, and that we might be able to go back to, to some of the some of the ways of, of having a respectful and, and productive discussion on these matters that is, that is void of some of the tensions that we've been seeing recently. Another area is, is just life, life equality, and that is to be a voice for, for the unborn. Um, and on Saturday, the 8th of October, at the Treasury Gardens, there is, a, there is a gathering once more to pray. It's not a demonstration per se. It's just being a voice for the unborn, and for coming together to, to give a show of the sacredness of life once more. This is an area that's very, very close to my heart as well.
And then if you're sort of thinking, well, this is great. We, I may or may not be able to get to that. I can certainly pray over the month of October. What else can we do? There is, in 2009, there was a Manhattan Declaration. In 2010, a Westminster Declaration in the respective countries, the US and the UK, calling attention to, to these various beliefs, religious freedom, marriage and family, and, and human life. And we have a Canberra Declaration. We have one ourselves. There's, there's thousands of signatures already on this, but you can add yours to, that, to, to this little declaration as well. Um, by signing it, and your voice does matter, you are, you are helping to call attention to those who are making laws in our society that, that these issues are important issues. And that we're not, just, we're not just sailing here without a rudder to wherever the, the current of the culture takes us. But there are important beliefs and values that we have cherished for hundreds of years, which have steered us up until this point. And we pray and trust will continue to steer us into the future. And so by signing that declaration, you can, you can declare that as well. So hopefully this month, um, let's pray and trust that, that God will move across our nation, hey? Let's pray that we can, we can discuss these things in a, in a manner that is respectful to all people and that expresses the love of our Heavenly Father for everyone, re- regardless of their particular belief system. And let's trust that God will also strengthen our marriages, protect our marriages, and, and hold up something which, you know, unquestionably for centuries has, has been the core part of what makes a society a society. So let me lead you in prayer um, now and, and ask these things, and I commend these other actions uh, to you as well. Oh, Heavenly Father, these are, um, these are big topics and difficult topics to sometimes get our, our head around, but we are so thankful that we have you, and, and good theology starts and finishes with you, actually. It is understanding the mind of God. You're not left us without any any understanding in this matter, your, your word provides a very, very um, sure foundation for the sorts of issues that are very much confusing our society today. We thank you for that rule, your law, the word, your truth. We call it many things, but we delight in the fact that, that it is a light unto our path. that we know where to step, we know which direction to go when the lamp of your word is guiding our path. We pray once more, Heavenly Father, though there are many we recognize in our nation, Australia, who do not acknowledge you or your word, that nonetheless you would hear the cry of our hearts, and though we be few, that you would hear our prayer and answer our prayer and have mercy on us as a nation. Lord, not only for this generation, but the next, we do ask for an outcome that will bring you glory so that you are seen, the image of God and your triune nature is seen for who you really are. That we would come to understand love that is not mere sentiment. 
Unity that can't be manufactured. Fellowship that is real because it's born of your spirit. That we would understand these things to be true because we know that they are true in the very nature and the makeup of the Trinity. And that we might get just a glimpse of what that means through marriage as you have defined it in Genesis. As a man and a woman becoming one flesh under you. Lord, will this be a month of of growth and health in marriages right across the nation? Would you prosper families and therefore society as well? Would you do something in Australia that stands as a testament to the whole world? Would you reclaim that which has been lost, Heavenly Father? And in the midst of this, would you give us great wisdom, great patience? Would all of the fruit of the Spirit be evident, not only in us Christians as individuals, but in your church and all those who represent your church and speak on behalf of your church? Lord, we are constrained by your Spirit, and we long to bring you glory. So let these things be, we pray, and bless our gatherings and our times of prayer. We ask that this would be to great effect. For your name's sake, Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to the Eltham Baptist Church Podcast. If you'd like to hear more or simply pay us a visit, go to www.elthambaptist.net.